Good morning, that's our text, John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Please follow along. The topic, the 11 disciples were confused when Jesus said they wouldn't see him, then they would, then they wouldn't. The title of the message, now you see me, now you don't, soon you will, then you won't. Father, what a blessing to be here together with your saints, saved sinners, Lord, and maybe a few unsaved sinners. Pray, Lord, that they would understand their need to be justified, that that they need to be made just as if they had never sinned in order to go to heaven, and that the only way that they can do that, Lord, is through Jesus, who came and took their place on the cross and gives us righteousness in exchange for our sin. Help us in the word, Lord. We we want insight and how to uh, understand it. Your Holy Spirit, he really does need to teach us, Lord. Otherwise, we uh, are not learning anything of any real value. And so may he be in our hearts active today, Lord, in uh, inspiring this word to us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, (coughs) amen. Former Department of Military Instruction Director at the U.S. Military Academy, Colonel Robert Tex Turner, famously said, I woke up in a cold sweat. I had a nightmare that I was still in ranger school. Thank God that I was in Vietnam. Compared to ranger school, combat was easy. Each month, hundreds of army ranger candidates report for their chance to face the toughest physical, mental, and emotional challenge they will ever likely occur, or encounter, rather. Only a small number make the cut. Navy SEAL training, not designed to get you in shape, You must arrive in excellent physical condition to pass the rigorous physical screening before you can be considered a SEAL candidate, a majority washout. Second Lieutenant Jake Jensen, West Point graduate with honors, was being considered for the elite international force known as MIB. Answering future Agent uh, Agent J's question, Jensen said, we're here because you want the best of the best of the best, sir. He failed. There's no easy way to say this. Jesus' 12 disciples failed. They completed three and a half years of rigorous training during which they were all the time with Jesus. He taught them many things, such as how to pray. They participated in two-by-two missions, returning with stories of spiritual success. They often spoke, either openly or secretly, about their readiness to serve the Lord in the kingdom of God on earth. Then came Thursday prior to Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday. Philip expressed uncertainty as to who Jesus was. As Jesus was sharing the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, Luke tells us that the disciples began to fight over who was the greatest. Judas betrayed Jesus to the religious authorities. He would afterward hang himself. Jesus asked them to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They repeatedly fell asleep. Peter denied the Lord three times under very little pressure to do so. With the exception of John, who was at the cross with the women, the disciples scattered, leaving the Lord alone. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, but instead they went back to the Sea of Galilee and returned to their fishing business. If this were ranger school or SEAL training or the MIB, all of them would have failed to make the cut. They did make God's kingdom cut 
Jesus said to them after this, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And in that day, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Hey, guys, you have totally failed. I'm going to restore you, and when I restore you, you're going to be able to praise directly to the Father, and you're going to go on missions, and it's going to be great. Have you ever felt like you've betrayed or denied the Lord? Maybe you have. Have you failed to pray? Of course, we've all been there. Been puffed up with pride? Oh, yeah. Sounds to me as if Jesus wants to restore you and refresh you and reiterate his love for you against that dark backdrop of your failure is his faithfulness. Keep this perspective as we go through the text. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when you sorrow, Jesus encourages you to rejoice. And number two, when you scatter, Jesus expects you to return. Let's look at his encouragement to rejoice in verses 16 through 24. The Lord is coming in the year 2060. That's the prediction of Sir Isaac Newton. When he was not inventing calculus or formulating the theory of universal gravity, he was commenting on the Bible. His contemporaries considered him a theologian. The historical jury is out on whether or not he was a believer on account of his rejecting the Trinity and secretly holding to a few other heresies. I only mention him now to point out that he spent half his life muddling with alchemy. He was looking for the mythical philosopher's stone that would turn base metal into gold. God turns your sorrows into gold. Job, our chief sufferer in the Bible, said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And so he would put Job's flesh through the ringer, as it were, and he would come forth as gold. Jesus has not held back in this, his final talk to the 11 before his death. Trouble would follow them like pig pen's dust cloud. They would be the Lord's solid gold servants. Verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. A little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. For a little while, the 11 would not see the Lord as his body lay in the tomb. They would see Jesus for another little while after he rose from the dead in his heavenly body. Then he would ascend to heaven to remain there until he comes to resurrect and rapture the church. And again, they wouldn't see him. Verse 17, then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us a little while and you won't see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I go to the Father? And they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. So they didn't understand really the resurrection. They certainly didn't understand the ascension. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. To them, it sounded like a who's on first skit. Cut them some slack, even with, completed, uh, with the completed Bible and the Holy Spirit. Contemporary commentators disagree on the exact interpretation of many of the things Jesus said the last night before he died. And so you can certainly understand their confusion. Uh, what seems clear to us uh, was obscure to them at the time. Verse 19, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. I bet they were sitting there thinking, stop saying that, stop saying that. 
Jesus was God, and so we think, of course he knew that they desired to ask him. But really, in this case, you don't need to be God in order to know what they wanted to ask. It seems pretty obvious. And they were openly talking about it. This wasn't a secret. If it was supernatural knowledge, it is what we call a word of knowledge. I like to pause on these for a while because I think it's important. In the Gospel of John, we've been pointing out that Jesus was God from eternity past. He took upon himself a body when he came to the earth. He remained God and he was human at the same time. He's the unique God-man. As God, he voluntarily set aside the independent use of his deity and he relied instead on his Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so people look at this and they say, well, of course Jesus knew what they were talking about because he's omniscient. Absolutely, he is God and omniscient, but for the purposes of uh, his time on earth, he set aside his deity in order to act and behave like a human. And in that case, God would give him a word of knowledge, which is a supernatural gift that many people in the church have. We don't have all the gifts. Everybody has some gift or gifting. Uh, the word of knowledge is when God tells you something you can't know otherwise. Uh, and it's important we keep Jesus in this way. It's not diminishing from him, fully God, fully man. But remember, he was also an example to us of how we ought to live the Christian life filled with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't do any good for him to be an example if we think, well, he was God. Of course he knew everything. He was omniscient. How do I compete with that? Well, you're not in competition with it. You, you listen to God, just like Jesus did, and do what he says and say what he says. Uh, so anyway, back into the text, verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you that you're going to weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Be turned into expresses our Lord's amazing capabilities. It isn't alchemy, but from sorrow he produces joy. That's what he says, right? Your sorrow will be turned into joy. If you're like me, now you want to stop and say, what are the five ways that that happens? What five, how does God turn my sorrow into joy? And, and I don't want to compare it with something lame like the philosopher's stone, but a lot of things, God just doesn't have to tell you how he does it. He does it because he's God. He has promised me and you that your sorrow will be turned into joy. He doesn't say you have to do anything. He, it, there's no asterisk at the end, you know, on the bottom where you go, now, as long as you pray enough and read enough and do enough, you know, penance and things like that. He says, guys, I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. And so are you sorrowing? Do you have some lifelong sorrow, some current sorrow? The Lord is going to turn it into joy. I don't know when. I don't know how. But it's a promise that you need to claim for yourself. And there's, as far as I can tell, there's nothing you need to do except let the Lord work in your situation. Verse 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born into the world. I've been told that childbirth is painful. I wouldn't know, not just because I'm a man, but because I come from an era when men were men and waited in the waiting room with other manly men eating donuts and drinking hospital coffee, telling stories. And when the nurse finally came, I said, clean up that baby and I might hold it. You know, that's just sort of the situation, you know. When our first Mary was born, 
uh, it was C-section, and, and so I, 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 I had planned to go in during the birth with the, you know, whatever kind of breathing you're supposed to do at the time. I think it was, you know, gestalt but back then, but I don't know. And so, but that didn't happen. She was a, a C-section. I remember waiting in, the, in her little room for them to come get her, and down the hall, this poor lady, I mean, she had just screaming, screaming, screaming. Finally, one of the nurses came in and said, shut up, you're having a baby. And that seemed to turn the trick, uh, but. When they first brought Mary out, uh, she was in the little incubator, you know, not an incubator, it was a little thing, and they wheeled her out. And instead of looking first, I, I wanted to get an immediate picture, and so I'm looking through the lens, and I thought, what, what is this? Uh, it, it looked, because the umbilical cord was still like, like from here to here on her chest, and I thought, what is it? And, uh, and I, uh, I said, he's really something, said, it's a girl, Gene, it's a girl, you know, and stuff, so. Weird, you know, so that's my experience with babies. I have to admit, she was really ugly. Uh, well, her head was all squished and stuff like that. They say C section babies are cute, but not if you've been labor for like 16 hours or something. But uh, anyway, she turned out to be beautiful after that, so praise the Lord for all that. So, anyway, I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about birth and all that, but I think it's painful until you give birth. Oh, man. As Archie and Edith Bunker sang, those were the days. The childbirth illustration has a lot to do with Israel and her Messiah and the promised kingdom of God on earth. In his prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus compared the future seven-year tribulation to birth pangs. The earth and those who inhabit it will be in a seven-year labor. Their birth pangs start slow, then accelerate as the scroll is opened in heaven. That awful time of intense suffering will give way to incredible lasting joy when Jesus comes in the second coming. As for us in the current church age, the world will get worse and worse. Where is the joy? Well, Jesus says, therefore now you have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. We're gonna see the Lord again and that's a joy that we can have now and will have forever. David Paulison writes, in the hands of a loving God, sorrow and suffering become the doorways into the greatest and most indestructible joys. Again, I don't know how. No one knows how. It's a spiritual thing that God, he says, I'm, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to experience sorrow and then have incredible indestructible joy as a result. They would not see him before suffering and dying for him but he would see them. Did you catch that? It doesn't say in this verse that you'd see the Lord. It says he would see you. Jesus emphasized that he would see them and you. He can never not see you. I know that's not proper English, but that's why you'll remember it. The Lord can never not see you. If you ever feel like you're not you know, in the Lord's will or you know, that the heavens seem like brass or your prayers aren't being answered, it is impossible for the Lord to not see you. He doesn't misplace you. He doesn't turn away from you and, and in disgust. He, he can never not see you. He is there. And, you know, I keep, we keep pointing out in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is in us, right? You can't be any closer to God than have your body be his habitation. And we do have all those experiences of, of the heavens seeming like brass and God seeming distant and all that. But that's why we jump back into the word and say, well, Lord, my sorrow is going to turn into joy. I guess I'm just waiting for when that's going to happen, but it will happen. 
Jesus saw his disciples martyred. Five of the 11 would be crucified. James, son of Zebedee, was decapitated. Bartholomew was decapitated also, but first he was skinned, flayed open. Thomas was speared to death. Matthew was stabbed to death. The other James was stoned, and when he didn't die right away, he was clubbed to death. And I'm sure they were all like Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, who said, I see the Lord, and his face shone like that of an angel. Edward Clink writes, the definitive and permanent nature of the disciples' joy is not based upon the absence of future grief and affliction, but by the placement of all grief and suffering into the larger context of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rejoicing is encouraged by knowledge of the future of the world. It just is. I know every graveside service I've ever done, every memorial, uh, you know, hope only comes from what we know to be true of the future. We live in the church age right now. The church age will end with the coming of Jesus in the clouds to resurrect dead believers and rapture living ones. At some point after the rapture, the great tribulation will begin. Jesus' second coming occurs at the end of that seven years in fulfillment of what has been promised to the physical descendants of Abraham. Jesus rules the kingdom of God on earth for a thousand years. Final judgments on the wicked, final resurrections of the righteous, eternity round out the future. More exciting still, you know a lot about your future. You were saved, placed into the spiritual body of Jesus. You were born again. God the Holy Spirit now indwells you. And earlier in his talk, Jesus indicated this was a permanent indwelling. The Holy Spirit guarantees you are going to heaven at the resurrection and rapture before the great tribulation. Jesus will complete the work he has begun in you. He will present you faultless in heaven. You'll live in your mansion in the city of gold in the new Jerusalem, hovering over a restored earth in the restored heavens. For all eternity, you will enjoy perfect fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And don't forget that you will experience reunion with your believing loved ones. That's what is in store for us. The worst that the world can do is kill you. And they can do it super violently, right? I was, I didn't really research it, but I was coming across, you know, when you're talking about these martyrdoms and stuff, um, I believe it was Isaiah, traditionally we think Isaiah the prophet was sawn in half. I always used to think it was like the magician's trick, you know, where they, saw you in half and pull you apart. When they sawed you in half, they hung you by your feet and they sawed you in half this way. Uh, not me. <laughs> or maybe me, who knows, you know, so. Your future ought to stir up your joy regardless of your sorrow in this world. Things are gonna get better for you because Jesus rose from the dead and he went before you into heaven. Verse 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask me nothing means that they will have access to the entire Godhead and not Jesus only. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection brings us into uh, a greater fellowship with God. And I admit I'm somewhat confused by some of the parsing here of the sentences and all, not being scholarly, but I, what, it's really, what Jesus is really saying throughout here is that, hey, you guys need to realize 
we have a, you have a whole new relationship with God that you never had before because we have completed this plan of salvation. On earth, this was represented by the tearing in half from top to bottom of the veil in the temple. That veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, but it separated man from God. It symbolized that men had no access to God except through sacrifice. And, and, and then, you know, when the Lord died on the cross, the Lord, uh, God the Father reached down from heaven and literally tore the veil in half, saying, hey, it's open now. We're all having fellowship now because the sacrifice is complete. We might say that God has an open veil policy insofar as uh, contacting him anytime, 24-7. As pointed out from these two verses, uh, technically we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Pink writes, Consequent on Christ's exaltation, the Spirit in and with believers draws out their hearts in prayer, teaching them to present their petitions to the Father in the all-prevailing name of the Son. And so, th through the Father to the Son, or through the Spirit to the uh, Son through, to the Father, right? And, and that's, uh, that's true doctrinally. Uh, that's what happened. But basically what Jesus is saying is that the whole triune Godhead had a part in salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Father sent the Son. God the Son sent the Spirit, all cooperating with each other for the sake of our salvation. And as a result, now we're able to pray and talk to God. Technically, it's because Jesus died on the cross and the Holy Spirit applies that, and now we can talk to the Father directly. But, you know, we, we don't want to get technical. We need to quit parsing everything into a formula or a method. This isn't a prayer template. You can pray without mentioning the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who is empowering you to pray through the Son to the Father. You know, sometimes people, they, they, they get all twitterpated about baptism, right? Because they have these ideas about baptism saving people. And they say, well, were you baptized? Yeah. In whose name and by what words were said? As if there's one formula for baptism. And if you weren't, you know... Uh, using that formula, they say you, you're not saved. And we can look at prayer like that and think, well, this is how I have to pray. This is a template for prayer. It's not. Talk to God all the time from an intimate love relationship. We like to, I, I exaggerate sometimes, have you noticed that? I exaggerate everything but my handsomeness usually, but anyway. Sometimes I say, hey, the, the, you know, don't read any books on prayer. Or get one that has like, you know, after the cover page has one page and one word that says pray. So I, sincerely, I, you know, I'll, I'll, you want to pray more, you want to understand prayer, you want to get into the presence of God. You know, I mean, that's a great thing. You're being motivated to what? Are you being motivated to pray or to read a book about prayer? You're being motivated to pray. The time that you spend reading that book, spend in prayer. And, and that, man, it seems pretty simple. What about receiving whatever we ask for in Jesus' name? That cannot mean that I can ask for a Ferrari and expect to have the keys delivered to me at my convenience. I did that between services, by the way. <laughs> so far, nothing. It is simply not true that I can ask for anything I want and expect to receive it. It's just not true. You know it's not true. So when you read something like this, it must be saying something else, right? Either that or the entire history of the Christian church is, is a wash. 
No one's ever, because no one's ever really achieved this. And so you're not going to get anything you want. So start with the words that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy is what you can confidently ask for and receive. God will give you that. I have a disease. I can pray God heal me. He can. He sometimes does. But what I really require as his servant who has the treasure of the gospel in my perishing body is to have supernatural joy that is full of the glory of God. In my new relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit, I can have that joy. In fact, I do have it because the Holy Spirit is already in me. I believe that it comes from the Lord and that I simply ask for it. Could it be that easy? Getting saved isn't easy because it was costly, obviously, the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you're saved, what did you do to get saved? Nothing. You believed. Belief isn't a work. You believed God, and it was accounted unto you for righteousness. And now when somebody says, you need to believe God that you can have joy, no, that's too hard. There's no way I can have joy in my trials. I can get saved by believing, become a new creature by believing, go be on my way to heaven. I can have all this phenomenal cosmic power, as you know the genie said. But if you ask me to believe something like having joy or enduring trials, that's, that's a little bit much. Why doesn't God give without asking? I might not want. I might insist that he get me out of my sorrow rather than produce joy in it. I've known a lot of Christians over the years who pursue something, healing, relationship, whatever it might be, it's something they want, and they go after it. And, and they lose a lot of ground, you know, and, and a lot of time with the Lord because they're trying to solve a problem that the Lord doesn't want them to solve. In that way, he wants them to be filled with his joy in that situation. And so if that's you, uh, just wait on the Lord, rest in the Lord. Christians can get stuck on wanting God to answer, but he doesn't always answer the way we want. It's from our weakness God has shown strong in this dispensation of the church age. Walter Craddock said, take a saint, put him into any condition, and he knows how to rejoice in the Lord. There are a lot of resources that give you seven or five or ten steps for having joy. We promote a no-step program. The Apostle Paul was confident that joy was what? A fruit of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he produces the fruit of joy as you let him. When you scatter, Jesus calls you to return. J.C. Ryle writes, the Savior of sinners will not cast off those who believe in him because they are babes in faith and knowledge. He can see reality under much infirmity, and where he sees it, he is graciously pleased. The followers of such a Savior may well be bold and confident. The disciples would scatter, abandoning Jesus. He assured them that he would be all right, and that he would make things right between himself and them. He was every moment of that awful night pondering them, protecting them, praying for them. He does no less for you and I. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in the figurative language. Time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Figurative language was in part intended to confuse folks who kept hardening their hearts in unbelief about Jesus. Figurative language to the believer could be an aid to understanding. Parables and proverbs and signs and things like that 
can make principles and precepts come alive. I don't think Jesus was telling them he had deliberately kept them in the dark. The problem was that they could only know and understand so much without the aid of the Holy Spirit to teach them, and he had not yet been given. Afterwards, they would be enabled to know and understand plainly about the Father. Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. In other words, they could talk directly to the Father. Jesus emphasized again that they would have immediate access to God. It was in his name, meaning on account of what he did by dying on the cross. The Father sees us as being in Jesus. He can thus lavish love upon us, justifying sinners while remaining just. But again, Jesus wasn't giving them a formula. He was trying to encourage them at their freedom to talk to God. Verse 27, and have believed that I came forth from God, I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world again, I leave the world and go to the Father. They believed that Jesus was their Messiah, but as I said earlier, they had a hard time knowing some of the things that, that we know now, you know, the, the ascension and all. Even at his ascension, they said, are you going to establish the kingdom now? And so it just, it, you know, they didn't know what they believed. As one thing I love about Christianity, when you get saved, you were blind and now you see you're saved, you're going to heaven and you don't know anything. You know very little. And in fact, some of what you know is wrong. Have you ever been, read, as a young Christian, read the Bible and say, oh, really? God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible? <laughs> Cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible? Uh, those kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, so these guys knew what they knew, but they, their knowledge was a little bit sketchy. His disciples said to him, see, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. They wanted so much to understand. They wanted so badly to shine as the Lord's disciples in whom he had invested so much of himself. By saying Jesus was talking plainly, they seemed to be assuming that his promise in verse 25 was now fulfilled. But again, it couldn't be until they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So they were misunderstanding him. And they, it was just normal day-to-day -day business as usual that the disciples misunderstood him. Uh, and, and really are, you know, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but they're, they're a bunch of goofy failures, you know, when it comes to this. And, and um, it's, that encourages me. I don't know about you. Maybe you don't think you're a goofy failure. Well, then you're a non-goofy failure, but you're, you're definitely a failure when it comes to uh, different things. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Their belief, however informed or uninformed it might be, would be challenged. They would fail in the trial, scattering like sheep without their shepherd. That illustration, by the way, comes from the book of Zechariah, and it has a threefold application to the nation of Israel. First, Jesus applied it to his disciples scattering. Second, the scattering of the sheep refers to the scattering of the Jewish nation when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And third, it's going to be fulfilled in the last half of the future tribulation period when the Antichrist goes full extermination mode to try and kill every Jew on the planet. Verse 32, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. It's okay, guys, the Father can't let me down and neither can I let you down. Are you in some way scattered? Maybe not walking with the Lord as you once did. He calls you to return and to rejoice. 
Yes, you failed him, but you made the kingdom cut when you were born again, and the Lord desires your restoration. Michael Keaton was the keynote speaker at a Kent State graduation not too long ago. He ended his talk by telling the graduates that he had two words for them, two words that would summarize everything he had just said, two words to inspire them, two words to remember. And then he leaned into the microphone and he paused dramatically and he said, I'm Batman. First service was blessed. Uh, let me, if you have about a half an hour, I can think of another conclusion. But One verse, this last verse summarizes the entire talk. These things I have spoken to you, all the things that Jesus has been talking about, that in me you will have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Woo, man, there's a lot of great theology and practical living in that verse. I don't think it requires much commentary. What it requires is much believing. Jesus overcame the world. To the extent I believe he has, I will be of good cheer having peace during any tribulation right? And so if I'm not at peace and, and my troubles are overwhelming me, then I need to understand that Jesus has overcome the world. My world might never change. And I hate to break it to you, but you're all getting worse. <laughs> Your bodies are falling apart, some faster than others, right? Some faster than others, but you, you, there's no hope for your body. And so, uh, you know, it, the, the outer man is perishing, amen, and the inner man is being strengthened and renewed day by day. You need to believe that Jesus has overcome the world and that you can have his peace, his joy. These are things the Holy Spirit produces without your effort. There are no steps other than believing and then just living out the Christian life. And so uh, believe God. Believe God.